this episode was pre-recorded as part of a live continuing education webinar. On-demand CEUs are still available for this presentation through all CEUs. Register at allceus.com slash counselor toolbox. Welcome, everybody, to today's class on fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. I am Dr. Donnelly Snipes, and we will be talking in general about FASDs today. There's only so much I can cover in an hour. We're going to briefly define FASDs for those of you who aren't familiar and identify the prevalence, explore areas of overrepresentation of people with FASDs like, hint, the criminal justice system and drug treatment, explore the impact of FASDs on the person and intergenerationally. Like I was just saying, there's less information and less research out there than I would like, but I can tell you from clinical practice what my experience has been, and discuss interventions and modifications to assist the person with FASD. And we're really going to focus a lot on early identification and then and screening and then interventions for the person with FASD because assessment is a multidisciplinary thing that has to happen. So that, that's just a whole class in and of itself. But I will give you some resources for assessment at the end. So FASDs are disorders that occur along the spectrum, which ranges from full-blown fetal alcohol syndrome to neurodevelopmental disorder prenatal alcohol exposure, NDPAE, which is now in the DSM-5 in the back section. Um, so, you know, it is making its inroads and there is a wide spectrum of what's going on. A lot of people with FASDs can be diagnosed with code 315.8 as other specified neurodevelopmental disorder if, you know, you need that for uh, billing and diagnosis. But anyhow, so fetal alcohol syndrome, some people have the facial features, some people don't. A good proportion of people don't. A pro good proportion of people who have the facial features in childhood outgrow those facial features as they get older. So we don't want to just say, well, that person looks like they've got FASD. People who look perfectly normal very well may have some sort of fetal alcohol syndrome or alcohol-related neurodevelopmental disorder. The National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism says the prevalence of FAS in the general population ranges from 2 to 5% for the entire continuum of FASD. And we were talking right before this class started that we're finding that it's actually a lot higher than that now as we become more aware of FASD. So it's important to bear this in mind because the chances are you're probably going to interact with people that have an FASD, either clients or if you work in criminal justice or if you're working in the school system, if you're a counselor in the school system or a teacher, you're going to encounter people with some level of fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. 94% of individuals with an FASD also have a mental illness, and I won't be testing you on this in the quizzes. These are just for your information to see how widespread the issue is. 73 to 80% of children with fetal alcohol syndrome are in foster or adoptive placement, partly because some of these children were born to mothers who are alcoholic. But the majority of children that have FAS are not necessarily born to mothers who are alcoholic. They may have consumed alcohol during the first trimester of their pregnancy, but they may not be alcoholic. They may not have realized that one drink could do a a day could be a problem. They may not have realized they were pregnant until they were, you know, two or three months in. It happens. So we don't want to automatically assume that the parent of the child with FASD has an addiction. There are a lot of other reasons that the child may be in foster or adoptive placement. Sometimes the family environment is not conducive to what's going on, and the child's disability causes enough stress that it increases the level of domestic violence or, you know, there are a lot of different ways, but they are disproportionately represented in the foster or adoptive placement system. 61% of adolescents with FASD experienced significant school disruptions, and you'll understand why in a little while, because they don't think like the rest of us, but they can talk 
a good talk. They, they, they often communicate expressively on a much higher level than they are able to interpret information or receive information. The prevalence of FASDs in the child welfare system is 17 to 19 times higher than in the general population. 60% of people with an FASD have a history of trouble with the law. Again, we'll talk about why that might be. And 12.8 is the average age children with, a, with an FASD begin having trouble with the law. One of the things that I was reading earlier that is kind of sad is that a lot of people don't even get their first FASD diagnosis until they are six years of age. So a lot has happened and a lot of early intervention that could have happened didn't happen during that child's really malleable formal, formative years. So what do we know about people with FASDs? They may have difficulties in the following areas, learning and remembering. A lot of times people with FASDs, and in answer to your question, Christina, I'm not sure why age six specifically, but the, the study by Streisguth indicated that the average age that children were diagnosed was six. My guess is because six is when they start school and a lot of developmental problems really come out more prominently when they start first grade, which is far different than kindergarten, it, much more structured, a lot more learning and remembering has to happen. People with FASD may have difficulty understanding and following directions, especially complex directions. They, they definitely have difficulty shifting attention. They get this laser focus, and then it's, it's time to go. It's time to do something else, and they have difficulty transitioning. They may have difficulty controlling emotions and may be impulsive. They have difficulty communicating and socializing. They have a lot of difficulty, for some reason, interpreting nonverbal behaviors. And they typically interpret nonverbal behaviors as being um, more intimate than they may actually be. They may have difficulty performing daily life skills, including feeding, bathing, counting money, telling time, and minding personal safety. And they have a tendency, some, Toward explosive episodes, often triggered by sensory overload, slower rates of processing the information around them, and these things adding up to them feeling, quote-unquote, stupid. Taking all these things together, I mean, just looking at this list, you can see how a child who is in elementary school could easily start having a lot of difficulties and acting out because they're having difficulty thriving in that environment. and. There are interventions we can do in order to improve the environment to make it more, more receptive to people with an FASD. When we're talking about adolescence, evidence shows that adolescents will commonly exhibit learning and behavior challenges, especially in adaptive functioning and getting along from day to day, remaining organized and regulated. Now think about your, your students who are in or your patients who are in high school or even, you know, moving beyond high school and getting their first job or, or what have you. They're having to remember to pay bills. They're having to remember to do homework. They're, there's lots of stuff they need to organize. They may inf learn information slowly, especially what is said to them. So it's hard for them to take in auditory information, process it, and they don't process at the same rate as people who don't have an FASD. They may tend to forget things they have recently learned, that short-term memory transition just does not happen the same way for people with an FASD. They have difficulty learning from consequences. And I'll jump ahead. One of the reasons we see a lot of people with FASDs in the criminal justice system is they have difficulty learning from the consequences of their actions. They're also very gullible and compliant, so they can be taken advantage of by other people. So when you're looking at a rap sheet of somebody with an FASD as compared to someone else, one of the things that may stand out, again, not always, but a good clue that you might be working with someone with an FASD is they have the same charge over and over and over again. They're not escalating in any sense of the word. They're just, they continue to do the same thing and they continue to get caught and it's like they're not learning. Well, if they're not learning, let's take a look at why that is because Generally, people learn from their mistakes. So we want to take 
those things into consideration. The same thing for a teacher or a parent where the child is continually making the same mistake repeatedly and just not learning from the consequences. We want to pay attention to that. They may have impulsivity and find it hard to inhibit responses. Now, most teenagers, they've got the hormones going everywhere. They're going through life changes. They're individuating. They're going through all kinds of stuff. So most teenagers tend to be a little bit volatile sometimes. But people with FASDs, on top of that, have very difficult time with impulse control. They may have difficulty in social communication and leave out important details, or they may just be very vague. Not intentionally, but they don't remember the details. They're very suggestible and influence, easily influenced by others and often have immature social skills, making them too trusting, too friendly, and they have difficulty recognizing dangerous situations. They just tend to go along. They're like, okay, sure, you want me to do that? No problem. Um, or somebody can manipulate them very easily. One of the treatment centers that's around here um, has children with who are neuroatypical. And a lot of them do have a diagnosis of an FASD. But they also have those children in there with other children who have um, conduct disorder and some other diagnoses that are not. It makes me nervous, you know, when, when I think about it, to have a, a student with conduct disorder who, you know, knowingly will manipulate others for their benefit with someone who is knowingly gullible and easily manipulated. So this is one of the things I was talking about earlier, and the best way to do it is to really look at the a chart like this. For someone with an FASD, their chronological age, how old they actually are on the calendar, could be 18. Physically, they're 18. Their level of developmental functioning, you know, whether they can solve problems and what they're doing in independent living, that's more on the level of a nine-year-old. Daily living skills. Those may be up to an 11-year-old. Now, this is where it gets a little interesting. Expressive language ability can be far in excess of chronological age. They learn to talk a good talk, which is why, number one, sometimes the FASD gets mis missed or not even considered because people think that people with an FASD have low intellectual ability, and that's not necessarily true. They may have really high expressive language skills. Their receptive language ability, their ability to understand what's being said to them and process it, is a seven of, at the age of a seven-year-old. So they're talking like a 23-year-old, but they're understanding at a seven-year-old. You see where that can cause problems. Artistic abilities or other strengths can be, again, way off the chart in terms of ex exceptionally development, de exceptionally developed. Reading and decoding is often a little bit behind what their chronological age is, but their comprehension, again, they can read it, they can read out loud, they can say the words, but understanding what they've just taken in is down around the level of a sixth, you know, first grader. And money and time concepts are also around that of an eight-year-old or a second grader. So when we're looking at these things, and this is not... Every person with an FASD, every person with an FASD is going to be at a different place on each one of these dimensions, except for chronological age and physical maturity, which is why it is so important to do the assessment. Additionally, people with FASDs fluctuate. One day may be really good, and one day may be really bad, and then you may have some intermediate days in there. So you can't think that what you did today is necessarily going to work tomorrow. Bearing that in mind, those of us who work with people with FASDs, we have to be flexible in the way we approach the person on a day-to-day -day basis. Members of the team, when you're working with somebody with an FASD and when you're doing an assessment, you have a case coordinator who reviews history and current stability, assesses needs of the individual and the caregivers because this person is going to have additional needs. After the diagnosis, the case coordinator connects the individual or family to positive supports. There's often a lot of guilt on the part of the birth mother. There can be a lot of anger 
or frustration on the part of the other family members. And there can be a lot of anger or frustration that comes out later as the child gets older from the child toward the birth mother for the disability. So there needs to be a good support system in there to help with the additional needs, but also to help them work through their emotional and, and cognitive issues. The case coordinator is often a social worker, but it could be a counselor, or in Florida, it also could be an early intervention professional. A psychologist and speech and language pathologist are often involved in the process to ass assess basic and higher levels of brain functioning. Physical and occupational therapists and voc rehab counselors are there to assess motor and in sensory integration issues. A physician looks at dysmorphology, you know, the facial features that we might be talking about, any neurological findings, and basic health determinants. And the physician will also contribute to the behavioral health profile. And the family navigator helps the family through the process, is ideally an actual caregiver of someone with an FASD. So they've been there. It's, it's a mentor in the process. And is ideally available to help the family connect with parent support and other needed resources. Now, a lot of this, if you're looking at, at it, if you're familiar with the early intervention program, I know it's in Florida. I don't know other, what other states have in terms of early intervention. But when children are born prematurely or with disabilities or if there's a sus suspect that they might have an FASD, early intervention teams are called in to do an assessment to do just that, intervene as early as possible. My son was a micropremie. And we had an early intervention specialist working with him when he was, I think his first assessment, he was four months old. I mean, he was barely sitting up and they were doing assessments to help us work with him. And we had all kinds of OT and PT appointments for a long time. But the members of the team, it's multidisciplinary when we're working with an FASD because the issues are multidisciplinary. Now, there is some evidence for distinguishing between children with FASD and children with ADHD, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because it really takes a lot of specialization to ferret out the difference. Generally, children, children with FASD have difficulties with encoding, taking in and processing information, and shifting attention. They have hyperfocus. Children with ADHD have problems with the focus and sustaining attention. Now, if you've worked with children with ADHD, you also know that they also can have hyper-focus. They can get extremely focused on something that they really enjoy, but they have difficulty on some other things. So there are a lot of nuances in the differentiation, but it is important to take a look and make sure that we are effectively differentially diagnosing FASD from, an, from ADHD. So functional impairment, multiple problems in multiple domains interfere with treatment success, including the inability to remember rules and follow multiple instructions. When you get into first grade, for example, the teacher may say, okay, after you finish your lesson, I want you to go get your lunch bag and then sit by the door in the, and get ready to go to lunch. That's three different commands in one sentence. Somebody with FASD, that, that's too much. They need single commands in order to help them process what's going on because it takes them a while. They take it in. It's like, okay, I need to finish my assignment. Processing, processing, processing. And the next two things that she said never made it into their short-term memory because they focus on that first thing. It's like, okay, I need, to, I need to do this. They need to remember and keep appointments or they may get lost on the way there. So making sure that People with an FASD in, in school, they need to have a schedule with them at all times. When they get into adult life, they need to have a, a day planner. With mobile devices, it's easier now because they can have push notifications and maps that help them get there. But there are things that we need to remember. Independently, they may have difficulty making appropriate decisions about their treatment needs and goals. So they may need to have a caregiver with them even when they are legally adult. They may have difficulty appropriately interpreting social cues, which can impact them in the work environment and it can impact them in the social environment. It can impact them even with, just with neighbors and things. Helping them 
become more adept at interpreting social cues is important. It may be difficult for them to observe appropriate boundaries either with staff or other clients or other students or whatever. They may be more touchy or may have difficulty with especially physical boundaries than other people do. They may have difficulty attending to and not disrupting group activities because they process more slowly. They may get bored. They may get restless. They may start asking a bunch of questions because they get lost. They have difficulty processing information readily or accurately and acting their age. So all of these things, if you're seeing these things in a child or even even in an adult, it's important that we pay attention to this because intervention can't come too late. It's better if it happens earlier, but even if you're working with somebody who's 28 years old and you start seeing these things, it is never too late to help that person improve their quality of life. Now, let me see. One of the things that we can use is called the um, four-digit code care di- caregiver interview checklist, and that's available for free through SAMHSA. It's a really easy guide to just a checklist of, is this person following through with things? Does this person seem to forget a lot of things, have difficulty with organization. It's very similar to the checklists that we use for parents when we are trying to screen for ADHD. Even with compensatory strategies, the person with an FASD may be less able to use judgment, consider consequences, or understand abstract situations. So they're a lot more gullible in social situations. Social isolation and loneliness may drive the person to seek out any type of friendship, which can lead to victimization if they don't feel like they belong. And we know how difficult school could be back when we were in school. And from what I understand from reading the news and talking to my kids and their friends, it's only gotten harder in terms of finding friends and friendships and acceptance. So social isolation and loneliness can really hit people with an FASD hard because they have difficulty with those interactions from jump and they are often ostracized. And impulsivity is an ongoing issue. So we need to make sure that the person with the FASD has a plan, you know, and the people that are working with that person know the plan for handling impulsivity. Because again, when some, with somebody with an FASD, they may not remember what they're supposed to do. They may. With time, they can learn new skills and everything just like anybody else does. But it's important that whoever's working with them, their teacher, their clinician, whomever, knows what the strategy is for if the person starts to become impulsive. We need to, as clinicians, keep vigilant for situations where victimization is possible. And I say as clinicians, Parents, caregivers, teachers, anyone working with someone with an FASD. But some of the things that we can do to help people with an FASD learn, and I told you we were going to focus a lot on interventions because, you know, what's, that's the point, right? To be able to help them. Role play, personal safety and specific scenarios that they'll face, like who's a stranger or who is a friend, to allow the skills practice. Role play, specific scenarios like the first going to class for the first day or meeting somebody or you know just various things that we do in daily life go through your day and take notes of the different social interactions and different things that you did and these are all things that are very appropriate to role play with someone with an FASD who might not have those skills so a parent is probably going to be really in tune to what skills their, their child has and what skills are still lacking and know where the role plays need to happen. And that's where parents and the treatment team can work together to design interventions where they're doing role plays regularly. Another thing to role play, for example, if they're going to a friend's house for a sleepover, let's role play what that would be like. Things that you might not think about for neurotypical children you need to think about for neuroatypical children. Videotape the client doing it right in the role play. So when you're doing the role play, have that video running. Again, so much easier now with mobile devices. You don't have to set up this big video camera with a VHS tape. 
videotape the client doing it right so he or she can watch it repeatedly reinforcing the lesson so let's role play what's going to happen when you go to church and so you role play it the client can see it maybe you even walk through it and go into the church and whatever then the client has that on their mobile device and they can watch it on the way to that event so they can refresh their mind about okay this is what I do in this situation it will help reduce their anxiety and it will help reinforce those concepts establish written routines and structured time charts and have these where they're easily seen throughout the day so if you have a routine for getting ready for bed have that next to the bathroom mirror so the person sees it when they're brushing their teeth washing their face yada 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 <clears throat> make sure to keep it simple you don't want to have a lot of words have it simple some clients with an FASD will need pictures others will do well with with words but remember they can read a lot but what they understand from what they read is significantly less so you want to make sure the person actually gets it provide a buddy system and supervision to help decrease opportunities for victimization this can be really helpful in school if the person has a buddy that they hang out with that can help them navigate and help the client find a healthy structured environment in aftercare to help them avoid criminal activity and obviously this is for somebody who's been in treatment of some sort but we want to make sure that when this person gets out of treatment or even the child who is going to school and hasn't had treatment or been in trouble with the law or anything we want to make sure when they have downtime that they are not in a place where they can be easily manipulated taken advantage of or get involved in criminal activity help the client adjust to a structured program or environment and develop trust in the staff again this is true whether you're talking about a treatment center or home maybe you have people coming in to help in the home or you're just the family or in school the client needs to be able to trust and know who they can trust there because they tend to be very trusting of everyone so it's important they know that who they can rely on who they need to look to if they're not sure if it's okay or not they tend to need a great deal of structure so this involves a lot of planning which some families are great with some families have more difficulty incorporating that structure a lot of times in schools and individualized education plan can be written to identify the structure that that particular student needs and they may have trouble adapting to changes in routine and new people so when there's a substitute teacher it can be a big deal for a person with an FASD when there are new people in class like the beginning of every semester or school year when you change classes and you have different teachers it can be overwhelming to a person with an FASD same thing is true when they get out of school and they're going to work if their boss changes or they get a promotion or they start a new job any change in routine is can be very overwhelming to a person with an FASD I want to say again here remember that FASDs occur on a continuum some people have very minimal impairment some people have extreme impairment so I'm talking you know about the wide range some people won't need nearly the level of intervention that we're talking about here you want to share the rules and expectations for the person early and often a lot of times parents forget about this because it's home you know what the rules are at home but people forget the rules at home and as children get older they get more privileges they get more things put on them that they're expected to do and a children a child with an FASD may not remember these things and it's not that they're trying to be disrespectful they just don't remember or if they go to grandma's house for two weeks you know that's a whole different situation whole different people whole different routines that's overwhelming how can we prepare help the person plan ahead role play things that might happen create charts that the person can take with them when they go to grandma's house to transition and make it as normalized for them as possible so it's not as much of a shock to their system put instructions in writing and remind the client to look at them often keep the rules simple and avoid punitive measures that many people with an FASD won't process they don't understand why they are getting punished for something that 
They don't connect cause and effect a lot of times. If a rule is broken, help the person strategize ways they can better follow the rule in the future. So instead of looking at what you did wrong and, you know, what do you think are the consequences, that abstract thinking is not something somebody can necessarily process if they've got an FASD. So let's strategize ways that they can better remember to follow the rule. Throwing the ball in the house, for example. Punishing somebody if they throw the ball in the house and they break a lamp, you know, they see the lamp's broken, but it's hard for them to extrapolate the emotional consequences or frustration of the parent or whatever on top of that because they've obviously probably forgot the rule that they weren't supposed to throw the ball in the house. So instead of punishing, we want to look at how can we help you remember that we don't throw the ball in the house. Focus on all aspects of the client's life, not just the substance abuse or mental health issues. Obviously, this is geared towards clinicians. Clients will come in, and obviously with FASD as a diagnosis or some level in there, but they will also likely have another mental health or substance abuse issue. Okay, got those things, but we also need to focus on biopsychosocially. Let's think about Maslow's hierarchy. Are they getting what they need for, for nutrition? Are they sleeping well enough? Because sleep deprivation negatively impacts the healthiest, healthiest people. It's going to have a negative impact on the person with an FASD. Are they getting their love and belonging needs met? Are they communicating well? We want to include basic living and social skills. Are they remembering, especially if they're living independently, are they remembering to bathe and do those sorts of things? Because a person with an FASD may not remember. Help the client develop appropriate goals with the co- within the context of his or her interests and abilities. If this person is really interested in model airplanes or something, well, then what kinds of things can that person do with model airplanes? Some may have the capabilities of handling the, the glue and everything. Others may not. If they have interest in art, What can you do to support their interests and help them develop and flourish in those areas that are their strengths? Provide opportunities to role play or practice appropriate social behaviors and focus on things that include impulse control skills. So identifying things that may trigger that particular person to act impulsively and then role play how to handle those situations. Record and repeat. Role-play situations like dealing with difficult situations such as being teased. And also role-play problem-solving. I mean, we do this with everybody else. Why wouldn't we do it with people with FASDs? Some of the things that they need to solve may seem overly simplistic. So we need to look when somebody isn't doing something the way we want them to do or they're not complying. We want to look and say, okay, what's the problem? What's, What's the breakdown here? And problem solve and strategize with them. So if you have a client that's not coming to, not showing up for his appointments, is always forgetting his appointments, instead of punishing that, we want to problem solve and say, what is keeping Jim from attending his appointments? And problem solve with Jim about what might be going on. If he says, I just didn't remember. Okay, so then we want to talk about how do we problem solve and help you remember things that are important because there's going to be a lot of things to remember that are important. Ways to help clients remember, and it depends on the ability of the client to read and understand and interpret information. Lists, rules on here, rules on a mobile device. You can make, you can even make charts that have pictures on them if the person has difficulty with receiving and encoding words. You can make pictures of what they're supposed to do and where they're supposed to go. If you want them to have a, quote, clean their room, they may forget what that means. So if you have a picture of what a clean room looks like, so then they can look and they can go, okay, that, yeah, that matches. That can help them. Rules charts and and structure and schedules posted where the client can see them and written in a way or constructed in a way that they can understand them are so important. When you're working with a person with an FASD, assume the presence of co-occurring issues. Assume that there is probably going to be some anxiety or depression or 
bipolar disorder or substance abuse in there at some point or another. Include the client in treatment planning and modification, just as you would include the client any other time. Now, obviously, a four-year-old isn't going to be able to really participate the same way that a 14 or a 24-year-old would, but we do want to include the client in treatment planning. Build family caregiver meetings into the plan with a clear agenda. We're not just having Jim Bob come to treatment and be dropped off and we work with him for an hour and everything's hunky-dory and he goes home and everything's wonderful. The FASD is a 24-7, 365 thing. So the family and caregivers will need to be in the loop on what's Jim Bob working on? What skills does he need to practice? What is he struggling with? How can we help in order to strengthen our family bonds instead of cause chaos. Recognize that some family members may also have an FASD. So when you're bringing people in, you know, go back to the things that people with an FASD have difficulty with, remembering, anticipating consequences, yada, yada. So if you're setting these family meetings and mom or dad just regularly doesn't come, they forget, and it's not that they're being passive-aggressive or there's no other therapeutic issue there, looking and assessing if there are signs of an FASD in that parent doesn't mean they can't be a good parent. It just means they may need to have some interventions placed in there. And it's going to be more imperative for us as team leaders or whatever your role is to make sure that we write things down, write everything down, and make sure that the family member is comprehending what we're saying. Because they can... Remember, they can pair it back to us, what we've said, and sound extremely on top of it all. But their actual processing and understanding of what they're saying is, you know, very, very small. Think about when you read, sometimes when you read journal articles, you'll read through a journal article and you read every single word and you get to the end of a paragraph or three and you're like, I have no clue what I just read. That's kind of what it's like for people with an FASD when they're reading sometimes. So bear that in mind. It's not that they're not reading. It's not that they're not trying. It's just it gets into their brain, but it doesn't get encoded. Incorporate multiple approaches to learning, such as auditory, visual, and tactile approaches. This is true for any learning. The more senses you can involve and the more learning methods you can involve, the more memory pathways are activated and the more likely the person is to remember it. So if they see it done, if they tell you how to do it, if they do it themselves, that's three ways that you've practiced it and ensure that the person actually knows what they're supposed to do. So, and then you can have a chart or a description that tells them what they're supposed to do, step-by-step -step instructions, a video of the role play that they did showing how to do it right, and then encourage them to practice it. Practice it at home. Just like we practice at home before you go to an interview or before you go on a first date or whatever it is, a lot of us stand in front of the bathroom mirror and practice. That's okay. We want to encourage people to use multiple approaches. Avoid written exercises. Now, we keep talking about writing things down, so why are we saying avoid written exercises? Written exercises in terms of avoid having somebody write an essay or keep a journal or complete a worksheet. A lot of times that won't make a lot of sense to someone with an FASD because it requires too much processing. That's not true of all because there's the spectrum. But if clients have difficulty benefiting from written exercises, don't keep doing it. So you can, if you think your client has the cognitive abilities to handle it, great. Try it. It can be very helpful. However, if you think that it's not going to work or if they do it and they don't seem to get anything out of it or they struggle actually completing the activity, fine. Let, let's do it a different way. You can talk about it. And sometimes that's a better way to do it because you can assess better for comprehension as you go. Focus on hands-on practice, role-playing, and using audio-video recordings for reinforcement of learning. Use multi-sensory strategies. So we talked about auditory-visual kinesthetic in a very word-oriented or um, what's the word I'm looking for? Rule or, or 
something, step-by-step oriented fashion. And that's very word-oriented. We're talking about something. We're implementing something. But multisensory strategies take that further and say, okay, why don't you draw me a picture of what happens? You know, draw me a little cartoon strip or paint or use music to help people for, to remember different things. Sometimes singing a song, if it has a rhythm to it, they can remember what they're supposed to do. Encourage them to explore different things and encourage them to use different strategies to express their feelings and you'll find out where their strengths lie. Do consider, however, all that being said, that people with an FASD can be very sensitive to light, smell, and sound. So it can be overwhelming to be in a room with bright lights, especially a room with fluorescent lights that have a ballast that's getting ready to go out that's flickering. It can be just annoying as all get out, and it can seem oppressive to that person. Smells. They can be extremely sensitive to those, as well as sounds, like the humming that comes from a fluorescent light can be excessively loud to someone with an FASD. Recommendations to help providers. We need to make sure that we set appropriate boundaries. Because of social communication problems, clients may breach boundaries by making inappropriate comments, asking inappropriate questions, or touching the counselor inappropriately. Oftentimes, it's more of a maternal touching, like they hug their mom or they ask inappropriate questions about, you know, your personal life or something. And it's about helping the client learn what's, what's an appropriate boundary to set and that it's okay. I'm not judging you. I'm not angry with you for asking, but that's not something that's okay to ask me. Have the client walk through the rules and expectations and demonstrate expected behavior for any sort of situations. When they first start counseling, you may have to go over with them at the beginning of every session. Okay, now tell me about what you remember about what we're going to do today. Or what are you excited about what we're going to do today? And have them tell you what's going to happen so you see kind of what they're seeing in their eyes or what they're expecting. And we can talk about whether they're on on cue or not. With clients with memory issues, they may be able to repeat rules but not truly understand them or able to operationalize them. Don't hit other people. You know, that's a rule. Somebody may say it, but they may not understand what they're supposed to do instead because they've got those impulse control issues they may know the rule is don't hit but they don't know how to not hit when they start getting upset limit the number of rules review them repeatedly and role play different situations in which the person will need to recall the rules when we're talking about school there's classroom time there's recess time there's lunchroom time and i'm sure there's another time i'm forgetting about but those are all very different settings Keep things simple and break instructions down into smaller parts. Use charts and reminders and minimize distractions whenever possible. When you're in a group setting, whether it's a classroom or even an individual treatment, sometimes the client is going to start getting restless. So allow them to get up and walk around if necessary. In a classroom, this could be somewhat disruptive. So brainstorming what sort of solutions are there. When I have clients with chronic pain or something in group sometimes they'll get restless or they'll it'll be painful for them to sit for too long so i'll have them sit in a corner of we have it in a horseshoe but i have them sit in sort of a back corner so they can get up and stand behind the horseshoe if they need to stretch their legs or something use concrete representations mark the floor to show the concept of boundaries physical boundaries it's This is where I stand, and this is as close as you should get. You can use Legos to represent people, or even use little character um, dolls. You can use water to represent energy, if you're talking about the energy needed to do something. You can use symbolic charts and alarm reminders for routines and role play. Again, we keep talking about role play. If you're working in a group environment, whether it's a family a classroom, or group treatment. Make adaptations for the whole group to avoid singling out the client. If you need to make modifications, it needs to be okay for everybody and you know, address the group as such. So you know, if you feel like you're getting restless and you need to stand up, you can go stand in the back of the classroom or whatever the case may be. 
with adult clients with an FASD, if medication is used, simplify medication schedules and provide support. Obviously, this is for an adult who's able to self-administer. Find something the person likes and have the person do that regardless of their behavior. You don't want to have them on timeout and lockdown or whatever you want to call it and being punished if they have a bad day. Even if they have a bad day, all right, you had a bad day. That was then. Now is now. So let's go ahead and do something you enjoy. And some of you might be scratching your head going, doesn't that just reinforce the behavior and fail to help the child see that there are consequences the child doesn't see that there are consequences a person with an fasd has a lot of difficulty understanding how some what something they did two hours ago why that's still impacting them now they're they're not getting that whole you know i'm grounded for a week because i broke my sister's iphone it they're not understanding and connecting the dots so it's important to make sure that they do have an outlet for some of their behaviors create a chill out space in each setting so if the person starts to get overwhelmed they have a place where they can go and be quiet be creative about finding ways for the individual to succeed establish achievable short-term goals set those good old smart goals and reconsider zero tolerance policies even if Jim Bob went all week last week without making a mistake but then this week he's started doing it again well, we don't want to have a zero-tolerance policy where he gets sent to the principal's office as soon as he gets out of his chair or something. We want to reconsider those policies. And I know from a teacher's perspective, that can be overwhelming because they've got, you know, 15 or 30 children that they're trying to control and teach and do all that kind of stuff, which is where the school counselor and school psychologist come in. Be consistent when you're working with a client with an FASD who's an adult in appointment days and times. Consider shorter, more frequent meetings or sessions because they have difficulty sustaining attention and getting much after a certain period of time. Arrange for someone to get the person to appointments for at least six months. Once it becomes part of their routine, it's part of their routine, but it takes a while to get them used to that. Have meetings on the same day each week, preferably at the same time, so they know at 2 o'clock on Tuesday, I meet with my therapist. Discuss each meeting with the person. Now, one suggestion was to use open meeting times if the person just couldn't seem to make a particular appointment, say, Thursday, you need to come in and check in with me. Some clinicians are okay with that. Some clinicians, that just doesn't work. And with permission and HIPAA compliance and all that stuff, Send text me message reminders to the person so they get a push notification on their mobile device that reminds them that they've got an appointment in 30 minutes or they need to leave to get, leave to, get to the bus so they can get to their appointment. Sometimes you may need to have a text message reminder that they've got to take a shower, that they've got to leave for the bus in order to get to their appointment. Have pictures of the counselor's offices on their doors. If you have a lot of counselors in your work, especially if you're working in a residential or a day treatment setting, that helps clients remember and get oriented to where they are. Identify possible buddies to ensure the clients get to appointments. So who are supportive people in their environment that can help them get their needs met? Identify people who are appropriate supports for the client as well as people who are not helpful. So it's important to talk about those people who are, who are not good influences and don't make them feel good. Program important numbers and reminders into their cell phone for them, with permission, of course. Ask comprehension questions on an ongoing basis, not just tell me what I just said, because they can repeat that back to you. You want to say, can you show me what I just asked you to do? Or what did I want you to do? Have them explain the meaning of what you did. Ask the client to summarize what you've said. So not in your exact words, in their words. Tell me in your words, what did I just say? And review written materials like rules at each session. Don't assume the client is familiar with the concept or can apply it simply because you've reviewed it 12 times. Sometimes you need to review it again because they've forgotten it. And people with more severe levels of FASD often have a hard time generalizing concepts from one thing to another. Have discussions that explore their understanding beyond simply being able to repeat the concept. 
please don't use metaphors or similes because that's very confusing. If you say, one of the ones I use a lot of times when I teach is knee high to a grasshopper. And that would confuse somebody who is, uh, who has an FASD. If you're talking about, you know, when this person was knee high to a grasshopper, they would be very confused because grasshoppers are very small. So how could a person ever be that small? They're not trying to be silly. They just don't understand. Don't use idiomatic expressions like a day late and a dollar short or people in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. Think very literally about what this means to somebody. And the client will be like, well, I don't live in a glass house. I live in a wood house. Well, you got me there. And don't use sarcasm. Be careful about joking with the person because they don't understand sarcasm. My friend used to work um, at a facility with clients with FASD, and one of the clients asked him about his, his truck at one point, and they were like, you know, Mr. So-and-so, did you get a new truck? And my friend wasn't thinking and said, nah, I just saw that one on the side of the road. I figured I'd drive it in today. And the kid said, oh, okay, and started walking off. And my friend was like, wait, 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 no, it's not what I meant. So any of those sort of Bill Ingvall-ish responses to things, you don't want to use. Assess comprehension on an ongoing basis. Review written material. Don't assume that a client's familiar with a concept or can apply it. Be aware of the client's strengths. A common theme that caregivers need to be attentive to is powerlessness, which can be reflected in the client's undervaluing their own competencies. They don't feel like they're worth anything or they don't feel like they can. Self-efficacy is way down there. They view others' needs and goals as more important than their own. They feel like they're a burden or a bother. They may have an inability to obtain nurturance and support for themselves, either because the family's not able to give it or they don't know how to ask for what they need. They may have feelings of depression, anger, and frustration about their lives. They are, are very intuitive people. You know, they may not understand some things, but it doesn't mean it doesn't hurt when they're lonely. It doesn't mean they don't have angry uh, anger or get frustrated with things because they realize that they're different than other people. And they may have low ex expectations for their own success. So we want to empower clients by, again, building on their strengths, complimenting them, showing how them how far they've come. Some specific treatment issues. Women with an FASD may fear becoming like their mothers. They may fear getting pregnant and drinking while they're pregnant and having a child with an FASD. People with an FASD may have difficulty with forgiveness of their birth mother. We want to reassure clients that they're not responsible for their disability and educate them about the science of their condition because they, they may not understand everything that's going into it. Other tips. Expect to repeat things many times in many ways. They may ask the same question every time you see them because they're cognitive deficits, because they don't they're not remembering or they're not able to connect the dots or generalize that, okay, that was the way it was Tuesday, and that's the way it still is. Use a written journal or goal sheets, a lot of times that we write, but it could be for a higher functioning person with FASD, they can write it, to remind people how far they've come and where they're headed and to focus on what they've accomplished rather, on the goals they rather than on the goals they haven't met. So let's look how far you've come. Look at, let's look at what you're doing today that you weren't able to do a month ago. Or let's look at all the things that you accomplished in school this past week or month or whatever. So focus on the accomplishments. Realize that there's no set approach. What works one time may not work the next. Clients may experience things differently day to day or even hour to hour. And variability is the norm. So we need to stay away from that notion of, well, it worked the last time. Well, that's true, but it ain't working this time, so what's the new strategy? Top unmet needs for caregivers. 69% said that they need to discuss their feelings about their child with someone who's gone through the same experience. So it's really important to have a support network out there. 61% need to have help in preparing for the worst, whatever that may be with that particular child. Many need help help with resources for their self and their family because having a child with an FASD in some cases may mean that a parent is not able to work because they've got to be a full-time caregiver. 
They may need help in remaining hopeful about the child's future. They may need respite care to get a, just get a break from all the responsibilities and the structure and everything else. They need to be reassured that it's usual to have negative feelings about changes in the child's behavior. It's normal to get frustrated. It's normal to get scared. And it's normal to get outright angry sometimes. That's okay if you recognize what's going on. You know, we want to help them identify that feeling and figure out what to do with it instead of venting it on the child. Half of them want complete information on their child's thinking problems. Half of them want to be shown what to do when their child is upset or acting strange. They don't know. I mean, if think back to the first time, if you've been a parent, think back to the first time your ch child did something. I mean, I remember with my first child, you know, the first couple of years, I was learning how, as I was going, and I, I was just like, I, I don't know what to do at this point. I'm out of options. I've gone through all my solutions. And then I'd call my mom or my mother-in-law and go, oh, any ideas here? About half of them want to be told why their child acts in ways that are different, difficult, or strange. About half want to have different professionals agree on the best way to help the child, and that's difficult in any multidisciplinary team. So it's important for the team to have team meetings and all be on the same page. And caregivers often need help paying attention to their own needs because it's not, there's a lot of attention focused on the child, but the caregiver also needs help and assistance and support. So in normal development, the child between 12 and 21 can evaluate their behavior in relationship to the future. The child with FASD lacks a connection between thoughts, feelings, and actions, so we're needing to help them integrate those. The way we do that is through repeated skills training with role-playing and videotaping and just going over it with them. In 12 to 21, there's in normal development, there's a high importance on peer group. With people with FASD, they still need to be accepted. They're still craving a peer group and social interaction, but we need to help them resist negative peer influences. So it's important for us to help them connect with pro-social peers, mentors, and coaches, and make sure that there's a safety net out there keeping an eye on them um, when they're in school or wherever. And during this time, there's also the development of intimate relationships. People with FASDs have difficulty interpreting social cues, so we need to help with social skills training and repeated discussions of sexuality and intimacy as appropriate. Now, we went over a lot of information. Are there questions? And I'm going to pull a couple things over here. If you go to comeover.2, who knew that was even an extension? There are recommended assessment tools for children and adults with confirmed or suspected FASD. A lot of these will seem very familiar. The Bailey scales, the infant Mullen scales, KABC, Vineland, WISC. You know, these are things we're used to looking at. Assessment for adolescents, the RAT, the Woodcock-Johnson, the WACE, very familiar with those. Risk assessment questions that can be asked during the assessment of someone when you're talking about the talking with the caregiver and it helps you identify any features or signs that a person may need a referral for an in-depth assessment the and if you guys want to go take your quiz you can now i'm just giving you extra resources the fetal alcohol spectrum disorders competency-based curriculum development guide it's 274 pages so there's a lot of information in here. If you're working with somebody with an FASD, there's, you can, there's a lot of information you can glean from it. There is a significant amount of information, if I can get to the table of contents, on simply how to do the assessment and prevention. There's like two chapters dedicated to prevention of fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, which is all well and good. But if you're working with a person with an FASD, you want to kind of jump down to, to the later chapters. And then the CDC does have some information on FASD and the statistics. The best thing about the FASD site, uh, page on the CDC site is the fact that it does link you to some of the FASD programs that were funded. A lot of them are not funded anymore, but you can still find some archives, um, archived websites that you can take a look at. Let's just... Pick the southeastern. Oh, goodness. Well, 
That's evidently not an FASD site anymore. Anyhow, um, <laughs> that teaches me for clicking on links without knowing what they are ahead of time. Everybody have an awesome weekend. Next week, we start the five-part series on human sexuality and cultural diversity. So hope to see you there. If this podcast helps you help your clients or yourself, please support us by purchasing your CEUs at allceus.com or getting your agency to sponsor an episode. A direct link to the on-demand CEUs for this podcast is at allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. That's allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. To sponsor an episode of Counselor Toolbox and reach over 50,000 clinicians per week, go to allceus.com slash sponsor. Thank you.